Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now here's our program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Vikram Iyer, and uh, while I've held roles with the National ACLU, the Obama White House, Congressman, now now Senator Ed Markey, um, today I'm here in my personal capacity um, on the Inforum Advisory Board with the Commonwealth Club, and I couldn't be more delighted to moderate today's special program with Representative Charles Booker. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with Representative Booker um, for a few reasons. Um, chiefly among them, he is running to represent the bluegrass state of Kentucky in the United States Senate. And, and fun fact, um, Mr. Booker, my family, when they first immigrated here from India, actually first landed in, in Kentucky. Um, my father was a professor at UK Lexington. Um, so so this, this hits differently. Yeah, absolutely. So this hits a little differently, even though I'm, I'm sitting here in California today. Um, to, to hear about your vision for the, the very state that, that gave birth to my own parents' American story. Um, and, and I'll start by, by just recognizing a few um, key, key attributes to, to this race. Um, now, personally, I am 36 years old, and I feel like I've had the opportunity to, to do a few cool things in life. Uh, but Charles Booker is making the rest of us look pretty bad because in 2018, he became the youngest black state legislator in nearly 90 years. Just think about that incredible history after being elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives. He did that in 2018. In 2020, he made national waves by challenging um, Kentucky elder senator and, and statesman and, and current Senate minority leader Mitch McConnell. And just a few months after that um, epic campaign, he founded the Hood to Holler grassroots organization to make sure that government was working for everyday Kentuckians and not just shorn up to the interests of special interests or for government bureaucrats and the bloat that goes along with that. And then now in 2022, just a mere few years after becoming the youngest black state legislator um, in the Kentucky House of Representatives, he is running for the U.S. Senate. And we are very excited to hear a little bit about that campaign, but we're also here um, to hear about that story. And that story has just been beautifully, beautifully memorialized and articulated in a new book um, that Representative Booker has out. Um, I'll let him speak more directly to it, but it is called From the Hood to the Holler, a story of separate worlds, shared dreams, and the fight for America's future. And he reflects on his unlikely journey from growing up in the impoverished Louisville West End to becoming a young lawmaker in Kentucky to what's at stake in the years ahead of us as a young lawmaker seeking uh, the United States Senate. He, he also seeks, ex- uh, sorry, shares experiences um, around systemic injustices and some of the racial inequities that he experienced and what that might mean for today's uh, least fortunate in America. And we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour. So there will be a lot of time for you to ask questions as well to Representative Booker. Um, If you're watching along with us, please don't be shy. Put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them a little later in the program. Thank you, Charles, for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much, brother. It is a pleasure. Um, Again, I'm going to say it now in front of everyone. Thank you for the work that you do, all the work that you've done. And um, man, just hearing you talk about 
some of the things that I, I've done in just these last few years. Like, yeah, uh, my wife is probably a little accurate when she calls me crazy, <laughs> um, but I, I'm grateful for this journey. Um, I'm proud of the testimony that um, I have, and, and I'm honored to share it. And this book, uh, my memoir, which is not just my life story, but it's a story of people that feel forgotten, um, that have been ignored. And in a lot of ways, it speaks for a Commonwealth, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, um, of folks who dream big in spite of the odds, and then what that can mean when we do it together, when we lock arms and essentially save our pursuit of democracy. And so um, as crazy as this journey has been, uh, I'm glad I get to tell the story and excited to have a conversation today. There's a lot um, at stake in this country, and I want to do my part to add value to how we move forward and, and how we how we heal, how we realize true democracy, how we realize justice. So let's get it. Let's go at it. Let's get after it. And, and for, for noting the body of work that you've built and the impact and sacrifice that it's had on your family and certainly your, your partner and better half, it's a good look that you, you offer dedications to the family in the very beginning of the book. So, so we, uh, we will respect that with you in this journey, recognizing that your story is their stories too. And, and maybe that's a good place to start because I think one thing that memorializes um, your work in the book as well as just your journey today is how exceptional your path has been. Um, but I, I want to dwell a little bit on that word exceptionalism because sometimes when you come from impoverished backgrounds like you have or if you've experienced systemic violence like you have, or if you see and recognize day to day that even if you're able to write a book to serve an elected office, that there are still structural inequities that persist in your own community like you have, that somehow you graduating for that from those circumstances is somehow the exception. That somehow, except for all these other circumstances, you wouldn't have otherwise had the chances that you've had. And it sounds like when I hear you um, in this book and when I hear you on the campaign trail that you're talking about taking this fact away from the fact that your story is just sort of like a rose from concrete and rather everybody should be able to access these opportunities. Can you say a little bit more about why you feel the world might be celebrating your journey in this book, but really how you take umbrage with the fact that you're, they're accept celebrating you as exceptional in the first place? Thank you. Thank you for framing it that way. Um, you know, as much as, again, this is a story that uh, encapsulates my life, my hope is that when when people read it, they see themselves um, and they see um, their own aspirations, their own struggles and their own triumphs and um, their own adversities, but their own faith, um, whatever that might be. And um, I love to be a part of redefining the narrative of who who should be uh, seen as valuable, who is who is exceptional, who deserves and who doesn't. Um, because in my community, we in large degree have been told we don't deserve. Um, and I come from one of the poorest zip codes in Kentucky. And Kentucky is one of the poorest states in the country. Um, and Louisville is a very hyper segregated city. And so the West End, the hood, is majority black and brown and you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, both my parents dropped out of high school. I talk a lot about my story, but it really is to unpack in, in, in a lot of ways, tear away 
this idea that my journey and who I am is exceptional to the point that no one else or there aren't others who share these same triumphs and these same aspirations. If anything, there are a whole lot of roses um, and we just haven't busted up enough concrete for them, you know? And so um, I am grateful for what I've been able to see. Um, and I think the power in me being in a lot of rooms where folks are like, well, why is this young black guy from the hood in here? Who is this young guy? You know, I was everybody's assistant as I talk about in the book. And um, as it, as exciting as it was for me to, to soak up all of this knowledge and gain a lot of wisdom that allows me to run for U.S. Senate now and, um, you know, be in a position um, to, in a little over a week, uh, make history as the first black Kentuckian to be a major party nominee for U.S. Senate. Uh, what I really want to help shine the light on is there are so many brilliant and talented um, and incredible and deserving, we all are, just for our humanity's sake, uh, but just really remarkable people that deserve to be heard. And if I can inspire someone else to know that their voice matters and that they can step into leadership and and be um you know, be a warrior for change, for healing, um, then I'm doing my part. I think that that uh, reflects a lot of what your campaign has been examining when it comes to the type of coalition you'd like to build. Um, it's also reflected in, in the book itself when you talk about the, the urban and rural divide. And, and what I mean by that specifically is sometimes it's easy for commentators, political pundits, or just even people sitting in their living rooms like I am right now out here in California to make assumptions about who Kentucky is, what the character and growth of the state can be based off of the current electeds. And you are not only challenging incumbent politicians in the state, but you're doing so with a very specific uh, eye. And, and I want to read an excerpt from your book. You say you, you come from the West End of Louisville, a place so isolated and segregated that in many ways it has more in common with the hollers up in coal country than it has with the rest of the big city. And that often ignored reality gave you a unique perspective in terms of your responsibility to really shine a light on common struggles and shared goals and bridge the divide between the urban and rural communities. It, can you say a little bit more about that reflection? I, I know that that could sum up every single one of your stories in life, but the book makes clear that there's a lot more that unites Kentuckians than divides us. But if we were to just look at the two senators your state have elected, as well as the demographic and kind of racial ethnic, or the sorry, the racial makeup of the political power in the state, people might make the assumptions like you just mentioned that it's a black man from the hood. Can he really speak for me? Or there's an urban or rural divide. Can he really speak for me? But you seem to, to, to dispel all those misnomers and say, this is exactly the type of coalition we need for the state of Kentucky. How exactly are you going about doing that when the rest of us are sitting here skeptical? Yeah, you know, I, I'm smiling as I'm listening to you because that is, that is the work. Um, it's the work of Ben in the Ark you know, that Dr. King spoke about. Um, it is the work of us realizing true democracy. We're still striving to realize it. Um, and I take pride as a Kentuckian um, in doing my part to redefine the notion of what's possible. And the whole idea of judging a book by its cover, you know, and even if you, you look at my 
cover. So my daughter took this picture. <laughs> my uh, my wow. three. So I have three bosses. Of course, I talk about um, in here my fourteen year old, then I have a six year old, and then a, a eight month old too. So um, you know, I'm getting some grades now. As all these barriers I've been breaking as a young person are <laughs> sort of flying by now. But um, you know, if in the covering and of itself, um, in the picture. I do essentially what we call a mug and, you know, and it's, it's sort of this, this face that is like, um, you know, if we own the, we in the street and you sort of have to be tough. Um, you gotta be ready to take care of yourself, defend yourself. But because of the, the struggles and the adversity that we've seen and we have to essentially protect ourselves from to survive, we get labeled, uh, we get dismissed. Um, we are seen as a deadly weapon before being seen as a human being. And to be able to show that face that is a part of my story, but help to really tell this deeper story about humanity and saying, don't judge us by the cover. Don't judge us by, you know, the narrative that you've heard. Don't judge us by our U.S. senators currently. And, um, and then to be able to help give some agency and just, um, to provide some room for more regular people to know that their voices are important. And the whole dynamic of the urban and rural divide or the the myth of it, um, the way it's been perpetuated, um, our work of disarming that is really, in a lot of ways, something I call a new Southern strategy. Um, it is our work of getting at the heart of structural inequity and racism that has caused so many of us, the majority of us, really to be fighting amongst ourselves while the wealthiest few are laughing to the bank. And in a state like Kentucky, where poverty is generational, this common thread is so pervasive that if we had leaders that spoke to that truth, you could galvanize a lot of people quickly because everyone's sort of falling off the cliff. And, and that is essentially the premise of my work. Um, it is my message. And if you even unpack that a little bit further, that's a lot of the reason why so many people in Kentucky voted for Donald Trump. Because if you go a step further, a lot of those same people voted for Bernie Sanders. There is this deep desperation that isn't partisan, that is really saying, look, we are plummeting and we're trying to figure out how to survive. Is anybody going to fight for us? And my hope is that this story can help shine a light on the ways that it's possible and the ways we can heal and doing it at the same time. And, and speaking of Senator Sanders, am I correct in which you held a role um, alongside that campaign when he was running for president? Is that right? So, yeah. so when, so when he was running, um, so, you know, I, I supported his campaign and, um, you know, stepped up in my elected capacity to formally endorse. And um, last summer, actually, he came to Kentucky and joined me. Uh, for a rally to talk about our economic future um, and namely to call out Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul for making it their their careers to screw us. And so um, having having leaders at the national level that understand what's possible in places like Kentucky is really important. So um, I'm proud of that. You know, that's an incredible feat um, and, and really demonstrates the momentum around this movement um, that these shared struggles are policy failures and we need to rectify them as opposed to these shared struggles being seen as tribal and, and inherently political um, in their nature. So I, I do want to dig in a little bit more about what you said uh, about poverty itself, because 
uh, in your book, you talk about uh, in broad strokes, although there, there's several incredibly moving and, and, and heart um, string tugging moments in which you re- reflect upon your own circumstances. And the one that, that really hit home for me um, was how you, you spoke of your mom um, having to sometimes give up her own meals just to make sure that you could eat. And, you know, that, that issue of food insecurity is top of mind for this country um, here within our own um, rural, suburban, urban and, and rural divides. But other attributes of poverty are right here on our front door as well when it comes to, to families. And in 2021, we saw child poverty specifically from a family planning perspective nearly halved by a policy that, that Congress passed um, with, with some amount of bipartisan support. And then, of course, the president's signature in the child tax credit, something that would have ostensibly really supported your mom in that time and continued would support mothers and families to this day. But then we saw just as recently as this year in 2022, that there was a conversation in which the extension of that tax credit to continue to address systemic drivers of poverty was up for debate. And there were there were lawmakers, including uh, uh, a very notable lawmaker who will, will go unnamed in this conversation from West Virginia, who begged the question, if we're just doling out tax credits to families who are impoverished, are they really spending it on their family or are they wasting it on other items, you know, alcohol or other items and the like? I share this because I think anti-poverty initiatives are a key element of this book and your, your campaign. And yet poverty seems sorely misunderstood in this country. The very fact that we are still talking about how that money may or may not be spent when we have empirical data showing that it have child poverty is a clear divide between lived experience and political power, between the narrative of poverty and what we do about it. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why in this country we seem to ascribe the fault of poverty as as the guy or the gal that didn't work hard enough, as opposed to also talking about the fault of policies, the redlining, the discrimination, the lack of a a basic income floor that could also contribute to to poverty. So I wonder if you could tease that out for us and what your campaign has meant when it comes to addressing poverty head on in that way. You know, a a big part of why I am so proud and grateful to be able to tell this story and then um, to exemplify it in running for U.S. Senate um, is, you know, something that I've heard over the years and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says it often, you know, the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And there is such a chasm in the challenges that regular people see and feel and deal with and then those who are in positions of decision-making. Um, and it's created this situation where um, our ills are, are being perpetuated. And it often, uh, let's, I mean, let's be honest here, to step back from that. I'm in a state that has um, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. We have a, we have a, um, a lot of powerful people uh, that represent us uh, in leadership, but our state is one of the poorest. Um, we understand that poverty is a policy choice. And so it begs the question, why are those who are in positions of decision-making choosing poverty? Well, if you haven't lived it, um, if you don't see the humanity in people that face hard times, it can be easy for you to judge. And part of why I'm so vulnerable um, in this book, even more so than um, a lot of 
uh, consultants would have wanted me to be. Um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of political memoirs and, um, you know, I've, most folks typically don't go where I went. Um, and that was on purpose. Um, I'm, one, I'm not a typical politician. And two, um, I wanted to be vulnerable um, to help shine the light on the humanity of people who get judged. Um, we didn't struggle because we were morally deficient. Um, it wasn't because we didn't pray enough. I talk about both my parents being ministers and how important the church is and, and faith is in my, my foundation. Um, it wasn't because we didn't work hard. I talk about working multiple jobs, um, even when I was in school to help my mom. It, it, it wasn't because we're lazy. And, you know, and so being able to uh, walk in a position of leadership with that acute understanding of the humanity of people who are facing hard times will better inform me as a policymaker. And, um, you know, I don't cast judgment on on those who don't see us. Um, I just believe we need to replace them in, in positions of power. And in, in part of, of that replacement has really, um, uh, for, first of all, actually, before getting to the next question, I do want to say I deeply respect the level of vulnerability that you, you show in the book. And um, for, for anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to to, to, to read through it yet, highly recommend thumbing through specific sections that, that speak about how his own story and his own career is informing a sense of what, what Mr. Booker is calling a Kentucky New Deal. Basically, that the premise of how things are working or not working for, for farmers in Kentucky, for shopkeep owners in Kentucky, for, 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 for those that are, that are maybe impacted by addiction in Kentucky, to to individual churchgoers, to, to your ministers in Kentucky, for everybody under the sun, the type of coalition Mr. Booker is talking about is motivated by stories in the book. But one common thread that I found was something that you talk about um, both in the book as well as on the campaign trail, which is this sense of freedom. And you, you know, mm -hmm. freedom as a theme um, seems to be the, the central premise of the American experiment, right? Freedom of something, freedom from something. And, and I kind of want to just tease out from where you sit and your story and what you wrote about in this book, what freedom means to you today. And, and I'll just add an asterisk that it feels that like oftentimes different folks across the political divide are all seeking to, to seize a piece of that freedom whether it is freedom from challenging circumstances in their zip code. You, you mentioned growing up in one of the poorest zip codes in Kentucky. That comes with it, a lack of resources for some. And so freedom from resources. Some others might say it, might, it might, should be freedom from prejudiced criminal justice systems and how we make sure that people feel that they get their fair shake and second chances. Uh, you ask other people more re recently uh, throughout, this, throughout the country, red states and blue states, they might say, Freedom to them means freedom from onerous regulations that from from a, a massive pandemic that may have impacted their business or their ability to be free in their own community, however they define that. Um, and, you know, the, the symbol of even a mask is being seen as, as a, a symbolic of freedoms of government or from government. And so everyone is sort of chasing this form of freedom. I think for, for me personally and for my family growing up as the son of immigrants, Freedom meant upward mobility, meant freedom from a previous circumstance. If you work hard and do the right thing, that maybe just maybe you can have a better lot in life. But freedom means a lot of things to a lot of people. And, and, and yet 
it is the core fulcrum of, of your campaign and your story. Can you tell us a little bit more about what freedom means to you and what you think it, sure. it, it needs to be defined as for Kentuckians on this campaign trail? Campaign trail. Yes. All right. So I'm not going to keep thanking you after each question, but but I will because you asked, you are really cutting to the heart of um, so much of the work that I believe we have to do and to to realize a safe and healthy and thriving um, society, country, or world. And, you know, a lot of the work that in, in the political space um, is storytelling. It is narrative building. It is branding. It is communication. And what I have seen here in Kentucky, and, I, and we see it on the national stage, is that so much of our language, um, so much of our, our narrative, the way we talk about things are shaped and defined by these wedges that drive us apart. And a big part of my responsibility in seeing that is to redefine the narrative and to push back on those narratives because those narratives often exclude me and, and my family, my community, you know, and my humanity. And so um, I've been lifting up this notion of freedom really from a, a standpoint of love and humanity um, and, and really centering these, these core ideals um, that we all deserve um, because we are a part of the collective, uh, because we are, we are here as family. And so everywhere I go, um, everyone I meet, um, I refer to as my family. And so everyone that is joining us for this uh, talk today, uh, we are family. You all have adopted me in. And, you know, as I often share, um, you know, I'm pleasant company. I don't, I don't eat too much, you know, um, at least I'm trying to cut back. But, um, you know, freedom to me and from, from this place of so much struggle that I've seen um, is, is really about being able to dream uh, dream big and being able to have um, the space and the resources and opportunity to surpass your dreams. Uh, that is a part of what um, the promise, um, the deal, um, if you will, if you will um, that has been made or that has been communicated, that is um, that we've been fighting for, we've been striving for. And, you know, I go all the way back. Um, so, you know, in the book I mentioned, um, the stories that my granddad told me and how I, I learned that my ancestors were enslaved in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, that I've had ancestors lynched in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and my granddad fought for the desegregation um, in Louisville. And, you know, this constant pursuit and even the, the journey for civil rights and addressing issues of, of like redlining and um, urban renewal and all these different things that have really gotten in the way of progress and, and you know, economic prosperity and opportunity for so many communities and how a pursuit of freedom is uh, in, in some ways um, a way to uproot those, those barriers um, so that we can dream and so that we can thrive and we can be safe and we can be healthy. Um, you know, I do think that freedom and, and liberty, you know, these types these terms, these very important terms have been um, weaponized in ways to um, allow for oppression and to allow for um, the humanity and the, the safety and the health of vulnerable, um, the least among us, um, to be disregarded. And, you know, people like the person I'm running against will do that often, you know. And, and so this really is my chance of taking the language back and saying that if we're all connected, um, if we all have these certain rights as human beings, 
um, if we know that love is the greatest power and the strongest tool we have, what does freedom mean within respect of all of that? And, and how do we get it? And, and for some of the, the, the conversation around being free to be able to be, to dream big, some of that, you know, as, as you define it and correct me if I'm wrong, also requires a form of maybe freedom intervention. One could frame it as in terms of reimagining our safety net, making healthcare easier to access, making it easier to afford prescription drugs. You don't have to choose between a meal and your own health or being able to have access to certain educational opportunities. Um, you know, if you were to embrace some of the premise of your of your policy positions that you've advocated over the years, that it sounds like Kentuckians are thirsty for because there's that huge populist um, kind of outcry for economic mobility, it would inherently invite a little bit more, maybe a lot more government involvement and, and government foundation setting. And to your point about that narrative being weaponized in a certain way, some people, not, not just in Kentucky, but around the country would say that that is in effect decreasing my freedom the more involvement of government i have in my life that's not a very nuanced way of putting it but that that is a sentiment in the way that that language has been weaponized have you confronted that on the campaign trail or in your in your own leadership in the state of kentucky and and how do you think about that specifically if folks are trying to claim freedom for their own turf and you're trying to claim it on a in a more liberating version of the world that they can imagine differently yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and taking that hit on is really how I'm, I've been able to build such a broad coalition, uh, literally from the hood to the holler. And, you know, there are yeah. folks that are organized with me who, who've had MAGA hats, you know, and um, a lot of this is being able to force this realignment. This is a part of the system level change that I often talk about in that um, who defines what freedom is and for who, you know, and, and understanding that um, freedom to oppress someone um, is not actually freedom. Freedom to rob someone is not actually freedom. Um, what we've been receiving, and, and part of my message to Kentuckians and to folks across the country is we're getting screwed. We're getting robbed and we're getting exploited. And and for those who are doing it, they're they're saying that, well, this is their their, their liberty and their freedom to do so. But the idea that the government has been used um, to perpetuate this inequity um, is what I am trying to fight to change. Um, so the realignment is that we can have a government that works for us and, and not against us uh, so that we can be free to dream, so that we can be free to live in safe, healthy and thriving communities. We can be free to own a business and invest in our communities. We can, you know, we can be free to pursue an education because we're not going to be crippled by um, debt that is pretty much designed to stay with us forever. We can be free to run for Senate because uh, we don't have to worry about rationing our insulin um, or the effects of not being able to afford medication, you know? And so grabbing those narratives back from essentially um, the wealthiest few and these corrupt politicians who don't care about our lives is a really um, major part of the story that I'm trying to tell um, and how it's not partisan. This is not a partisan endeavor. Um, this is bigger than that. Let's talk a little bit about the, the the race itself. You know, you mentioned earlier the cover of your book. Um, if you wouldn't mind holding it up one one more time, 
has has you mean mugging in the truest yeah. degree. First off, big ups to, to your little one for taking that photo. That is a gangster ass picture. I love it. Um, but it but it does personify a little bit about about how you have been approaching um, your your opponent. In this case, the incumbent Senator Rand Paul. Um, it, you have a, you are defining on the trail a lot of positive policy investments that you stand for when it comes to Medicare coverage, when it comes to this premise of the Kentucky New Deal, when it comes to bridging the, the urban and rural divide from an internet policy perspective, from a prescription drug pricing perspective, to even just mental health services and support, which, which obviously there, there's a huge constituency that would benefit from um, in many states, but Kentucky being among them. So there's a lot of offensive color that you're giving on the campaign of who Charles Booker stands for. But to the point of that mean mug, you do not hold back on creating contrast with with the incumbent, with your opponent on Twitter. You have said that I am a you are a type one diabetic yourself, and you said that you plan to end the chronic disease that is Senator Rand Paul. Um, you have said that you are running to help retire Senator Paul. You have called him out for his votes on being corrupt, of not looking out for the people of Kentucky, and that he is now more beatable than ever. And and I share this not necessarily to highlight negatives or contrast with your opponent, but when you are traveling through the state, you've got a lot of video of people that don't look like you, Mr. Booker, that don't look like me, that look like Kentucky from different occupational backgrounds to different socioeconomic backgrounds to different zip codes to different colors of skin and and they're with you they're there with you they are supporting a lot of the statements that you are making and so i'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about what has happened in the state of kentucky that kentuckians have elected time and time again the type of political power that clearly they claim themselves is not working for them um, and has created this glide path moment for you. I know it's not just because they're angry and therefore it's easy for you to show up. You have fought for that as well. But what's going on in the psyche of the Kentuckian voter today that they have been so willing to keep uh, uh, putting their finger to the buzz of, of the light uh, that a mosquito to a flame might be doing and continue to pull their finger to that flame. Um, but now they're willing to to maybe entertain a new approach, a new new uh, progressive coalition in, in your uh, candidacy, arguably someone that most people in Kentucky wouldn't have expected to be the voice that or the face of the person that they'd go with there. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, that is a part of why uh, From the Hood to the Holler even became a thing. Um, and I talk about in the story how that that sort of fell in my spirit and like, that's it. That's how we're going to define this. Um, you know, a big part of it, and, and go to your, for, your first point, um, First of all, I'm glad I get to even talk, lift up the hood. Um, I take pride in that. I'm from 35th Market. I'm proud of that. Uh, but also, you know, the the mug, too, is part of this understanding that we got a lot to fight for. Um, you know, now I'm a, I'm a joyful warrior. I'm a um, love is the weapon that I use um, is the tool that I use. Uh, but I'm here to fight. You know, I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for my commonwealth. And I and and I know that we deserve a brighter future. And by fighting, it means outworking those who want to block us from it. Um, it means organizing, lifting up voices and building community um, in places where there's been a lot of despair and, and a lot of people have really given up and then we've been exploited. And so that goes to your second, uh, the second part of your question, um, which is, you know, in, in simpler terms, it tends to be framed as, uh, well, why are Kentuckians voting against their interests? Um, 
And I always push back on that framing. Um, one, it's deeply offensive because it misses what is going into the decision that a lot of people are making. And let's be clear, most people in Kentucky don't vote. Um, so it's not even that most people are choosing uh, the Mitch McConnells and the Rand Pauls. Most people don't vote. Uh, Kentucky has been one of the most disenfranchised states in the country. So it has been disproportionately hard to be heard here as one. And then two, a lot of people have really given up. Uh, I, I see that that's the biggest um, barrier to our progress, I believe, is us collectively believing that we can we can see anything different. I mean, we've if this is all you're used to, I mean, Mitch McConnell was elected two weeks after I was born. If this is all you're used to, um, most folks just try to survive in spite of the the mountains. And, you know, I talk about in the book how, you know, my mom would always talk about, you know, our ability to move mountains, you know, that we're more than conquerors. And so um, a lot of what I'm doing that is really flipping that on its ear is really simple. I'm showing up. I'm going to the places that Democrats don't go because uh, they've checked it out. You know, they've like, there's no chance. I'm going to the places that Republicans um, have historically dominated, but take for granted. And it's because I understand the, the power of our common bonds. And, you know, we have a Democratic governor right now. Um, the, the, and I mentioned, you know, a lot of people that voted for Trump voted for Bernie. These, it's this bigger than partisan divides. In a lot of ways, we've conceded the narrative. And we don't try. And I'm so desperate for the change that I want to see because of all the stuff I've gone through that I don't want my daughters to go through. And because people of Kentucky really are my family, um, I'm desperate enough to go to the places where Confederate flags are waving and to knock on the doors and talk to them about what I believe we deserve together. And at the end of all of this, I'm just trying to give the people of Kentucky, a choice. Um, we're often told we don't get, we, we, we're voting against our interests or, you know, they're voting against their interests. But if they don't really even get a choice, um, what options are there between worse and, and worse than that? You know, and so um, that's what I'm looking to shine a light on and to lift up for the country. Um, because if we can do it in Kentucky, we can do it anywhere. I, I deeply respect that. And I think that there's a lot of, political prognosticators, consultants, campaign operatives, um, heck, even, even you know, Twitter or, or cable news that will reflect on the status of this race and talk about where's, where's Charles Booker spending money today, where are you putting ads up today? And if you're going into every single nook and cranny zip code of that state, that means you are showing up for all of Kentucky and that you are governing or you, you seek to govern for, for uh a, a mantra that's, you know, Kentucky for all, as opposed to just specific segments and specific groups. And, and that takes gumption. You know, that's, that's a hard thing to do, especially if you're going to places that have been, you know, plus five, plus six Trump country. Um, even if it is changing in terms of their economic populist narrative, that, that's hard work. And I respect that that's the type of campaign that you, you are running. I, I will ask, you know, we are, um, we are about to take audience questions um, I've already been getting a few great ones in the chat, but feel free right now if you have any questions uh, for Representative Charles Booker on his book, on his race, um, or how just badass that photo is on the cover of his book, um, please do uh, offer your questions right now. Before we get to the audience questions, Charles, I wanted to ask, you know, because 
so much of what you're talking about is a choice, a choice about freedom, a choice that maybe Kentuckians never felt that they had in the first place. All of that is informed by the narrative of what you just mentioned a moment ago of you and your mom and your family um, about moving mountains, right? Overcoming impossible odds, but also having just the, the fortitude and the unwavering determination to even start climbing up those mountains in the first place, right? This, this is part of my language, but a lot of the, the things you've achieved is hard shit in this to, to do, right? And in, in, in any part of the world, but particularly given the zip code that you came from, I'm just kind of curious, given that you've written this memoir and it reflects on OG Charles Booker as a young man to, to modern day, what do you think if, if you were to meet your 16, 17-year-old self kind of, you know, in the prime of, of a high school timeline, if, if that young man were to meet you today, what do you think he would say to you? Um, my, my prayer is that he'd say he's proud because um, I would want to tell him um, to keep going, you know, um, a lot of the a lot of the time, you know, we see difficulty and we face challenges and we think that that's all there is. Um, and I never thought that I would be on a national stage talking about the time me and my mom lost our home or having rationed my insulin or losing my cousins, uh, you know, to to gun violence. I, I never thought that I would be telling these stories in a way to heal for myself, but to help others. And um, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> I'm proud. I respect yeah. I respect and, and as you said, you know, that, that pride seems to be directed towards wanting to make sure that that can, that, that experience is not isolated. It's not just a rose from the concrete, but that we're moving the structural pieces away to, to remove the concrete barrier and the, in the first place. Um, with that, uh, Representative Booker, our, our first audience question actually has to do a little bit about the makeup of the Senate. Um, if you're successful in this bid, um, we, we should we should note for the audience that that uh, Mr. Booker has actually cleared a good chunk of the Democratic field. So he is on, on his path. We won't take anything for granted, um, but he's on his path to be the Democratic nominee. But come November with the election, if you are successful in ousting uh, the current incumbent, that would change the makeup of the U.S. Senate and would add one more Democratic vote. Uh, can you reflect on what you think that would mean for, for the current majority? It's already been challenged with its current margins to get things done. And so I'm just kind of curious whether you think this expanded majority would help or if it would continue to just operate in this state of inertia that we've arguably been seeing in Washington, D.C. So, so I'm very clear out about, you know, what, what I am seeking to do. And I know this is lifetime work. And so I also realize that the challenges we face are not partisan. Um, I mean, there's certainly one party that is really doing their damnness to crush us a lot harder than, than, uh, than the other. But um, I understand that there is a lot of progress that we can realize quickly um, by just winning this seat, keeping the, the, the seats that we currently have, but expanding the majority and mitigating a terrible, shameful Republican in the process. Um, and I'm often careful about leaning too heavily in the party because this stuff is bigger than that for me, but realizing that removing a Republican and giving the Democrats an even greater majority um, to mitigate uh, those who would not be named in this conversation. I have no problem naming them, but um, 
is a big deal for us um, passing legislation like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, you know, policies like Build Back Better, which is historic investments in um, just these basic necessities, infrastructure, leveraging the infrastructure legislation that we have. I mean, there's so much that's at our fingertips um, that the, the Biden administration had committed to and that if we had just a couple more folks that were not going to block all of this stuff and certainly keep Mitch McConnell out of the majority seat because he's going to block all of it, um, that we can do a lot of big things right now. That being said, um, even with that, I know that the the structural change that I'm ultimately pushing for, the work to, to really end poverty um, is going to be ongoing and it's going to be hard work, which is why I'm making sure that I'm not going by myself. You know, the organization that I founded, um, Hood to the Holler, we've been training people to run for office, um, targeting communities where um, folks typically don't vote or people that have been disenfranchised um, and really giving them the tools and supports to say, not only does your voice matter, but you can run and change stuff too. Um, and even in my own campaign now, we've been talking about the Kentucky New Deal and, and passing in this conversation, which I appreciate. Um, this is part of my vision of what structural change life, freedom, and prosperity can look like um, that's led by the people. Um, but I, I've wrote out this initiative to support and lift up races uh, at the state and local level um, as well um, across Kentucky that believe in this vision. Um, because what I'm proposing is not radical. And I'm not the only one that wants everybody to have quality health care. Um, and being able to help tell that story and build the coalition um, is ultimately what we're going to have to do um, but the thing is, the people are ready. As we've seen, look, folks are so desperate for change, real change all across the board, that the movement is really growing. And we just need leaders that will that will honor it and show the type of guidance to help us move the country forward. We saw on January 6th what it looks like when you have someone in a position of leadership that stokes the divides and capitalizes on anxieties and fears and weaponizes them and uses them to drive us apart, uses them to get us to turn on ourselves. That same urgency is still real, but it could just be used for us to move towards healing and not our destruction. And um, I'm committed to that work for the long haul. You know, a lot of folks will talk about um, the the direction of the Democratic Party. You know, ar arguably when you talk about healthcare. If we talk about climate investments, if we talk about um, even even just the way that we talk about um, racial equity and policing and structural reforms to our criminal justice system, there's been a lot of movement within the Democratic Party alone to say nothing of how Republicans do or do not respond to that. And, and that is, you know, and that is put on display when even within our own Democratic caucus in, in Washington, D.C., there you have moderates, you've got progressives and there's inertia and tension there. I'm kind of curious how you feel about the, the state of the National Democratic Party. I know you, you mentioned already you're not in the business of prognosticating on, on kind of the politics. You're focused on Kentuckians. But do you think that that you would seek or accept support? This is an audience question, by the way, from the National Democratic Party. Or do you see your campaign as not necessarily 100 percent lockstep with where kind of the National Party is versus where you're trying to stretch it to go? Yeah, well, so the first part of that question, um, there is a shift that's happening and it's happening whether 
people that have held on to power for a long time wanted to or not. Um, and it's really the result of so much inequity, so much desperation that's been compounded and these structural ills that we have not dealt with that are continuing to be perpetuated and, and, and gasoline thrown on them and all these things that we haven't reconciled um, are really boiling, boiling up and, and a shift is happening. Um, you know, folks with a, a you know, I, I think uh, I won't say it's a simple lens. I won't, I won't diminish it, but um, the idea of a progressive movement, um, this is a real response to the gross inequity that so many people are seeing. And, and it's a natural response. I mean, the pendulum is swinging back. And in a lot of ways, a lot of regular people are pulling it back um, toward towards us to say, well, you're not going to keep throwing us off the cliff like this. And and in terms of this campaign and just how I'm going to show up, um, I'm always looking to build coalitions, not at the expense of my integrity, not at the expense of what I'm fighting for, because I don't have time to waste um, and I'm not here for a title. And, you know, I've worked with Republicans in the state legislature to pass legislation um, that I knew would help the people of Kentucky. Um, my co-sponsor on one of the bills I talk about in the book um, was a big Trump supporter. And I call him my brother. I also tell him, you, you effed up for that. And here's why you're wrong. I tell him with love. Um, but, you know, I'm, I don't hold back. But it's, look, we're both type 1 diabetics. I've rashed my insulin. I nearly died. I ran out of my insulin over the holidays. I couldn't get a hold of my doctor. You know what that's about. Why don't we work together to pass a bill to make it easier for people to get their medication? And some of this is just having the audacity to ask that question, you know, to step yeah. out of my comfort zone. Um, and to make them a little uncomfortable and ask that question. Um, and so, you know, in terms of national democratic support, um, I'm not getting a lot of national democratic support right now. Um, the, you know, not from the DSCC or the DNC. And look, in one way, that's fine for me because we're building this from the ground up. This is focused on the people. Uh, Kentuckians are standing with me and I'm excited about that. Um, but my hope and my call for them, as well as everybody else, is get on the right side of history. Um, make investments in infrastructure. Let's actually make the changes so that we can be we can realize a better future for all of us, because we are all in this thing together. And, you know, we're going to do our job without whether or not they get on board. Um, but should they support, it would just be them knowing that this is our train. This is for the people of Kentucky. And uh you know, I, I look forward to, to having more conversations with the leadership and make sure they know that Kentucky is is in the room. Well, there you have it, folks, a, a, a campaign that is true to the book um, from the hood to the holler focused on Kentuckians and the, the coalition that is being built that is agnostic of party politics and mostly focused on making sure that um, the people, the neighbors, the, the, the folks of the Commonwealth of Kentucky are not thrown over the cliff, but are actually looked out for. Um, Representative Charles Booker, before we wrap here, um, a couple of, of important questions that we really need to, to drill down on. What is your favorite Waffle House order? <laughs> Can we do that? Can we do that? You know, my, my dad, oh. when he first landed in Kentucky, discovered Waffle House right out of the gate. So it is a it is a passionate topic in our household. So I, I thought I'd ask you as well. So, so I'll, you know, I'll do a milk. You know, I'll do like the um, and it's been years, man. Oh, now you're making me want to get some tonight. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I do like the the Briscoe melt. I mean, it's heavy though, so you gotta when you eat it, you know, it's it's gonna make a difference. Uh, but yeah, and you know, some good hash browns. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, when they're hot, you know, catch up on it. I mean, that's that's all I need. It's hard to be. Um, all right. Well, one one final question for those um, who are interested, who are tuning in today, but don't live in Kentucky, um, that want to be able to be helpful. Uh, to your campaign or learn a little bit about your campaign or just learn a little bit more about you outside of financial donations or including financial donations? What are the various ways folks can help as you build a path towards a new deal for the state of Kentucky? Yeah, well, first of all, I thank everyone that's joining now. And, and if you're able to help share our story, um, this book is a big reason why I'm, I'm telling this story. It's not just so uh, that I can post the cover that my daughter took of me, but um, this is really a story of regular people that we need to get out there. And, and as for the campaign, if you can take a look at us, look at what we're building and we're doing a lot of organizing, deep issue-based organizing. Um, you can go to charlesbooker.org to see more of what we're putting together and um, help us spread the word, if anything. That's the biggest thing. Of course, we're raising money for the campaign. You got to fund all of this work, but there's so much cynicism nationally in what's possible, but we're doing it in Kentucky and we just need more people to know. Well, appreciate everyone for, for joining in. Um, as, as you heard it there from Representative Booker, getting the story out of, of not just his own movement and his own campaign, but the stories of fellow Kentuckian that is memorialized in a new book uh, from the hood to the holler, um, but is also core to the campaign that he is building and a campaign that has seen quite a, a coalition be put together in the last several months. So thank you, everybody, for joining today. On behalf of the Commonwealth Club and the Inform group that supports today's program, we're really glad that you could join. And uh, Charles Booker, good luck to you. We know we'll be hearing more from you in the, in the weeks and months ahead. But congratulations on the book. And uh, we look forward to, to connecting again soon. Absolutely. Thank you again, brother. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inforum. You never know who you'll meet. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror, the atrocities in Ukraine... The Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunfloweropeace.com. Thank you.